It's my privilege to introduce to you Tom Darnell. Though some of you may have, uh, most of you, in fact, probably heard him speak. It was in late July, right? But you were here before, just about a month ago. You can see there in our bulletin this morning that Tom is the pastor of spiritual formation here in the Nashville Presbytery. You're wondering, what does that mean? What's the Nashville Presbytery? Uh, we are. This little church is a part of a larger movement, a larger denomination known as the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA. We are divided up into different regional presbyteries. We're a part of what's known as the Nashville Presbytery. And Tom was just recently brought on board with his new position. I know he's looking forward to it. I'm le- looking forward to learning more about it and working with him in that. He's going to be helping us out on the shepherding committee. Basically, you are the pastor of pastors, so good luck, man. <laughs> That's a, that's a tough gig. Welcome. Yeah, pray for me. It's a delight to be back with you uh, this morning. I uh, always enjoy being here. One of the things I want to begin for you this morning to be thinking about, and, and it's this comment, each of you in this room is a theologian. Did you know that? You may even be here this morning, you would say, well, Tom, I, I'm not even sure I would say I'm a Christian. Oh, that's all right. Everybody in this room, regardless of what you believe concerning Jesus Christ, is a theologian. We all have some kind of belief of what God is, who his son is, who the spirit of God is, and how mankind relates to him. We all have something we believe about that. It's often thought of that if we want to find out what someone believes, what their theology is, you give them an exam. And that's partially true. But I'd like to assert uh, that if you want to see what someone believes about theology, you don't just give them an exam, you examine their relationships. Our theology is always worked out in relationship. If you just think about the Ten Commandments, the first four, about our relationship with God, and then the next six, about our relationship with one another, our relationship with one another shows and reveals the truth of and the solidity of, and the soundness of, our faith in God. It really does. So this morning, I want you to examine your theology as it relates to the way that you serve one another. We're talking about servanthood today. True greatness begins and ends at the bottom. We're going to look at this passage just a bit at a time. I won't read the whole passage to begin, but I'll read the first section and the first part of this outline, and then we'll go through that all the way through these three main points. Let me pray for you and for me, and then we'll look at God's Word from Matthew 20. Our great God, we thank you and praise you for the privilege of being together. Pausing now, Lord, to look at your Word. And Lord, I would pray that you would cause our hearts to be tender towards your Holy Spirit, that we would be honest with ourselves and with you, about the way or we fail to serve. And Lord, we trust that we would be in your hand, pliable. Your Holy Spirit would lead. And Lord, from this time, we would be enriched in Christ and our relationships would be deeply affected as you call us to entertain the truths about what this passage teaches about Jesus the servant and his call to to his disciples to be like him, servants of the living God. Lord, this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look at the first point then in this passage, climbing to the top, the antithesis or the opposite of servanthood. Matthew 20, 
verses 20 through 23. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Matthew here tells us that the mother of these two disciples, we learn from the other Gospels, is James and John. Uh, They come to speak to Jesus Christ uh, about what they desire. Here, uh, the mother is the spokesman. Maybe the three uh, just agreed together that they're going to make this request. Uh, But here in Matthew, she's the speaker, representing the wishes of her sons, James and John. Now, they were under the misconception that Jesus Christ came to establish an earthly kingdom and that he was going to be king, that the Romans would be overthrown, uh, the Jews would reign, and Jesus would be king of the Jews. Uh, Of course, that assumption was entirely wrong. But they make assumptions, and they have thoughts, like we do, uh, that true greatness and power and prestige are found at the top. Uh, That if we're going to be a great person, uh, then we must have authority and power and responsibility over other people. Uh, That describes uh, what is great, what is important. And that's what these two men desired. Uh, and they're thinking that Jesus is going to establish an earthly kingdom. They would reign with him, one at his right hand and one at the left. That They would assume with Christ this position of power and authority. Now, for most of us, our spheres of greatness are somewhat limited. Uh, Probably not many really great people uh, in this room. Uh, We have smaller spheres of greatness. But here's what I find that sometimes I'm tempted with, having uh, responsibility of a fairly small sphere, uh, that sometimes I try uh, to assume greatness uh, by identifying with people who are. Uh, This is called greatness by association. Do you ever do that? You kind of name drop somebody you saw or somebody you were with, uh, although you didn't know each other and you were a long distance from them, Uh, a concert you attended or something you went to to hear someone speak who was a great person, And by doing that, if your heart's not careful, you're saying, because I was there with that person who was great, I am therefore like that person great as well. Do you ever do that? I mean, I do. I mean, in in Nashville, uh, there are sometimes conversations about uh, famous people sightings. And uh, I live in East Nashville. There are a few of those sometimes in East Nashville. Uh, Eating at a restaurant called Marcia across the room uh, uh, is a, a famous singer. Uh, Leanne Rimes. Uh, and the temptation is to go and tell people you saw Leanne Rimes and you were 10 feet away from her. I was at another restaurant uh, over in Green Hills area of Nashville, uh, at a restaurant called Nashville, and Vince Gill walks by. And I could have tripped him if I wanted to, but I thought I probably shouldn't. Uh, but I'm tempted to tell that story about a Vince Gill sighting. My son worked at a restaurant in a part of Nashville called uh, uh, Germantown, 
his restaurant was City House. Uh, he had a lot of famous people sightings uh, at City House. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow came one time when she was studying a movie and, and ate uh, at City House. Bill Clinton came in one time. They actually had a kind of a little embrace and kind of talked arm in arm. And he told me a story about uh, a Bill Clinton, not just sighting, but a conversation. Now, my temptation is to share those stories, which I hope I'm not today, but sometimes I will drop those names to say, and I know that's what my heart is doing. See, I was with or saw or near that important person. <clears throat> Aren't I important? So we may not desire what these two disciples desire, but I would say that a lot of us long to be thought of as being important. And that's what these disciples were doing. They were climbing to the top, which is the opposite or the antithesis of servanthood. So then we have Jesus giving a lesson on servanthood. This is cutting across the grain, the lesson on servanthood. Let's look at verses 24 through 28. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you, uh, you must be your, they must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you, you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we see in this truth something that could be called a left-handed thread. You know what a left-handed thread is? Uh, it turns the very opposite of what you normally turn a screw or a bolt, or you might put on a nut. It's just the opposite. You know the little quip, righty-tighty, lefty-loosey, right? Uh, but with a left-handed thread, it, that doesn't work. It's just exactly the opposite. I remember when we used to have a lot of Panasonic fans in our home uh, uh, some years ago, those are these blue bladed Panasonic plans. You ever seen them before? If you have been around as long as I am, uh, but you could take them all apart and clean them, which I had to do after every uh, summer season. So I would take them apart, and I would take the uh, the little cover that covers the blade to protect you from hitting the blade. And there's this large uh, blue plastic blade, and it has a large blue nut on it. And every year. I would try to take that nut off, and it wouldn't come off. <laughs> oh, it, this is a left-handed thread. I need to turn it exactly the opposite. I need to turn it like I would normally tighten something, and it would come off. And I would, and it did. It came off. This is a left-handed thread. The truth that Jesus is teaching is a left-handed thread. It is the opposite of the prevailing worldview, right? True? Man says, rise to position to have authority over others. That's the position of greatness. God says, descend to position that makes you a servant and a slave to others. That's what God says. It's exactly the opposite of the prevailing worldview, even in the church. So our mindset should be this. The passage of Scripture in Philippians, this should be our mindset. Paul teaches, do nothing. Nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That ought to be our mindset. 
If that is our mindset, then what should our goal be in the church of Jesus Christ as we're called to serve one another? I would suggest there ought to be at least one predominant goal. It's 1 Corinthians 14, 12, which says this. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, now listen, strive to excel in building up the body of Christ. That ought to be the goal of all that are in Christ's church. Strive to excel by building up the body of Christ. And we do that by what? By being servants of one another. That's what God calls us to. I read an article quite a while ago actually called, I Don't Want to Be a Servant. And I really identified with it because that's often what I don't want to be. <laughs> Let me just read excerpts that might help you in identifying the needs of your own heart. The writer says this. He says, the essence of being a servant is not existing. If you are a servant, you are to do all sorts of jobs without anyone having to notice that you exist. Being a servant is not my idea of self-fulfillment. So the next time someone's looking for a servant, I'm going to be slow to volunteer. It's not just that I'm lazy. It's that I think life has to have a sizable place for fulfillment. Probably Jesus' idea was that I didn't need to take care of myself because other Christians were supposed to do that. And that's a great idea. But it doesn't work. If I don't take care of myself, nobody does. Nobody took care of Jesus either. He put others ahead of himself and looked what happened to him. So much for servanthood. Maybe, maybe we need to find a balance between self-fulfillment and servanthood. But Jesus never did. Cutting across the grain, the lesson on servanthood. It's really interesting here in this gospel, after that encounter with the disciples, how what he has just talked about is demonstrated. He demonstrates servanthood. That's descending to the bottom, the demonstration of servanthood. Matthew 20, starting at verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. We know in another gospel that talks about just one man at the roadside, uh, and that was Bartimaeus. Uh, here there are two. It doesn't name Bartimaeus. We know that's one of the men. We don't know the other one. But there are two of them, uh, and they're blind. So here's the two things I want us, first of all, to do. I want to look at, first of all, the response of Jesus the servant. And these two observations we're going to make about Jesus the servant, they teach us how to serve. They teach us how to serve. Observe what Jesus asked. He said, what do you want me to do for you? Now, in our culture, uh, even sometimes in the church, uh, isn't that what leaders expect those they serve to ask them? <laughs> it is, isn't it? The Jesus 
the leader of leaders asked the question, what do you want me to do for you? Through the years of my 40 years of, uh, nearly 40 years of marriage with my wife Cheryl, 39 years, one year ago, we'll be married 40 years, is that I find I can be awfully selfish with my weekends. Uh, you notice I said uh, my weekends. Uh, that's the problem. Because I look upon them as mine. This is my weekend. And I sometimes don't think about, well, she has a weekend too. Uh, it's about our weekend. Shouldn't it be that the, the correct attitude? The answer is, of course. But I struggle to be a servant. Uh, so sometimes I think just about my weekend. If I have that mentality, it's a very dangerous thing to ask my wife on a weekend, sweetheart, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> she will always have an answer. <laughs> and whether it's written down in a list or not, she has a list. This is this honeydew thing that I know there are things that she wants to do together or wants me to do for her. And I struggle to ask her, sweetheart, what do you want me to do for you? And I would suggest that in the church we have that same problem with one another, don't we? What do you want me to do for you? Uh, we would rather be served than to serve. Uh, but Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. He asked the dangerous question. That's how we serve. Then observe what Jesus not just asked, look what he did. It says in verse 34, And in pity, Jesus touched their eyes. Pretty amazing. Very amazing. He wasn't just content to ask the question or to even be moved with pity, but he moved toward the need that they said they had. Sometimes we don't ask people how they can be served because we sometimes know already what their needs are. And we don't really want to move toward that need because sometimes it's a deep need and the needs don't seem to change very much. But Jesus Christ moved toward what their need was, and touch them at that place of need. I, I confess that in my, uh, my ministry uh, over these last whole lot of years, I've been in uh, full-time Christian service uh, for uh, 42 years. And one of the things I find uh, in the pastorate is, that challenges me probably as much as anything is when I make a hospital visit. And here's why. The scriptures talk about one of the gifts of the Spirit for the church is the gift of mercy. I know people that have the gift of mercy. Uh, the gift of mercy, when you see it in function, uh, is a beautiful thing. And uh, it just kind of puts me to shame as to the way that I struggle with, I don't feel like I extend mercy the way that they do. But I'm called to be merciful. It's like all the gifts of the Spirit, that we have people that are gifted in those areas in a particularly powerful way by the anointing of God's Spirit. But we all have certain responsibilities, though gifted or not, to be that kind of person. You may not, may not be a gifted teacher, but we're all teachers, right? You may not be gifted in exhortation, but we're all to exhort and encourage each other. We're not all gifted in mercy, but we're all to be merciful. So I find sometimes when I go to the hospital that I, I so clearly find myself uh, in great need and in sometimes great fear. The, my, my fear is that I'm not going to be as merciful in this situation as I need to be. 
And I just say, Lord, give me a heart of mercy in this situation. Give me wisdom to know how to respond to this person that's lying in this bed, sometimes uh, lying in bed near death, surrounded by family members that are brokenhearted, and knowing how to respond to this situation. You're not sure of when you get into the hospital, when you're in your room, you see the need, and you say, God, give me wisdom to know how to respond. Uh, so I find that, Lord, I want to say, Lord, I need to know how to touch this need, but I'm not sure what the need is. I'm not sure how deep it's going to be. I'm not sure how much emotion is going to be present in the room. But teach me to be a servant of mercy because I feel like I'm so bad at being that kind of person. Jesus was that with the two blind men. Jesus' response teaches us how to serve. But the plea of the two blind men, they teach us how to be served. The two blind men teach us how to be served. First of all, observe how committed the two blind men were to be served by Christ. Regardless of what happened around them, regardless of people telling them to shut up, Jesus didn't have time to talk to them. Uh, they yelled out all the more for Jesus to stop and to listen to them. That in a public setting, they let their need be known. Uh, they sh shared with great honesty how much they desired to be served by Christ publicly. Uh, that's the challenge, isn't it? Sometimes we don't mind admitting to one friend, maybe two, <laughs> the needs that we might have, how we want Jesus to touch us in some way. But to do it in this kind of way, in that kind of a public setting, to say, Jesus, I need you to touch me here, is quite a challenge. It's quite a challenge. It's quite a challenge to reveal our true condition, isn't it? Our true condition, the condition of our soul. Uh, this need that they had was physical, but it applies to the needs of our soul as well. The struggles that we have, the doubts that we have, the fears that we have, the lust that we have, the struggles that we have. I, some time ago, was watching a news magazine uh, that is no longer uh, available. Uh, it's called Day, it was called Day One. And uh, one of the men that was in the news magazine was Steve Croft, who's in 60 Minutes now. And they were interviewing uh, one of the men uh, that I watched a lot on TV because he coached a team that was my favorite team, uh, and that's the Dallas Cowboys. I'm not sure if I should apologize or just, just since high school, I've been a Dallas Cowboys fan. So they're interviewing Jimmy Johnson, who was then still the coach of the Dallas Cowboys. And there's this little dialogue that takes place, and uh, I was watching this and was astounded at what transpired. Let me just tell you what transpired. Johnson makes the comment, I keep a lot inside. And Croft says, why? Johnson responds, I, I don't know. Croft says, I bet you do. And just waited. He didn't rescue him. It got real silent. It was silent for what seemed to be a very long time. And Croft just waited. Johnson's feeling a little uncomfortable, wiggling around in his chair, and he knows that Croft isn't going to say anything, so he needs to respond, and he does. Here's what, here's what Johnson said. The more they know about me, the more average I become, and I want to be good, real good. 
the more they know, the less special I am. And I want to be special. And I just thought of me. You know, Why is it so hard for me to share the deep needs of my soul in kind of a public setting like these two blind men did? Well, because I'm afraid people won't think I'm very special. That'll just be average. Don't we all struggle with that? Most of us do. The two blind men didn't. <laughs> Observe how explicit the two blind men were and how to be served. We've kind of already touched on it. Verse 30, And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us. Let our eyes be opened. Now here's the point I'm going to make here. Now think about what's happened here in this uh, setting in the gospel. Jesus had this conversation with two of his disciples. He's now having a conversation with two blind men. I think we're meant to try to understand what is going on here. Two disciples, two blind men. In essence, the two disciples ask this, Lord Jesus, help others to see me. The two blind men said, Lord Jesus, Help us to see. Help us to see. So whether we're physically impaired in our eyesight or not, we all in some way are blind spiritually. And the challenge is is that we need to have the humility to say, Lord Jesus, serve my needs. Help me to see, Lord Jesus. And forgive me of desiring more to be seen than for you to help me to see. That's the challenge. So the two blind men teach us how to be served. Servanthood, true greatness, begins and ends at the bottom. Climbing to the top, uh, the uh, antithesis of servanthood, cutting across the grain, the lesson on servanthood, and descending to the bottom, the demonstration of servanthood. Now I want you to think about this as we close. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he didn't stop being a servant. Jesus is still our servant. He desires to serve his people. Now, here's why that's important. Because if you leave today thinking the main idea here is that Jesus served and I need to, I need to serve too. Uh, you've, missed, you've missed a major point, actually the point that should precede that point. Because you just don't need Jesus's demonstration or example of servanthood, what you need is Jesus the servant. That's the difference between Christianity and all of the major religions. Jesus Christ was resurrected that he might serve us in our weakness, that what he calls us to be, we can say, Lord, I cannot be that without you, unless you serve me, unless I cling to you, unless I admit that I can't be that servant unless you serve me, then we miss the whole point. You need both things. You need Jesus the servant, and you need his lesson on servanthood and to follow his example. But one must precede the other, or the second is not going to work well at all. We need Jesus the servant, not just his example. So here's the bottom line. Matthew 16:25, just four chapters before, says, and Jesus is speaking, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If we want to find life, then we need 
to lose our life in the service of others by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, the one who is ransomed for you and me. As I close, let me just read a part of an article that I read a long time ago called Let God Put the Squeeze on You. The writer says, For, for sure, no people in any place at any time have ever had more opportunities for growing in the faith than we have. Just look around you. Religious radio, religious television network, Bible study groups, neighborhood prayer meetings, and so forth. I observe an attitude which says that watching and listening, feeling, absorbing are our primary Christian responsibilities. We are terrific watchers and listeners. In our zeal for spiritual self-improvement, nothing wrong with that per se, we soak it all up, trying to hold every drop absorbing until we're positively dripping, bloated, sated, always taking without giving back. Being a disciple, a learner, was never intended to turn Christians into one-way sponges. Still we pray, Lord, fill me. I don't recall ever hearing, Lord, empty me. Granted, there's a certain attraction in studying theory, whether it's economics or theology. In religion, that's one way to keep faith at an arm's length. Celestial, undirtied, no sweat, no smells, everything tidy. It's not until you begin giving out that you take on the crushing burden of caring. We're not in business to ensure our own spiritual health any more than someone becomes a doctor to make sure that they won't get sick. But doctors have a passion to do something for other people. And sometimes in the place of the doing, they place themselves beyond their own healing. So go ahead and let God put the squeeze on you. Chances are you are robust enough to stand it. And anyhow, he is the source of renewing. Jesus puts it correctly for our time and for all time. Quote, your care for others is the measure of your greatness. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, how fortunate, how blessed, how privileged we are that we have a Savior. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thank you, Lord, for the service of that life given for us, that we might have new life, that we might be a transformed people, that we, Lord, who are so inclined to think of ourselves first can be transformed to think of others first and to die to self that others might live. Father, we would pray, help us to be life givers. Teach us to be the servants you've called us to be. We ask this through your great and powerful name. Amen.